All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to uh, continue our politics series today, and we're, we're on the practical side. We've laid kind of the framework or the groundwork for just understanding where we are as Christians in God's plan for the world. Um, and so what we have left to do is, is just define some terms or to lay out some secondary framework um, that will become kind of our process of going, okay, now what? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at three, three basic concepts. Uh, today, we're going to look at justice. Uh, next week, we'll look at love. And then finally, we'll look at wisdom. And we'll see that all of those are essential in the practical aspect of engaging with our community, in the practical aspect of, like we talked about last week, witnessing who Jesus is, testifying to who Jesus is, and loving our neighbor. Okay. Now, as we look at justice today, my primary goal is to show you that your functioning definition for what justice is, is too small. Okay. Uh, and that that is one of the most significant reasons uh, why uh, we need to revisit scripture is to expand our definition of justice. And to do so, I want to look at um, some of the self-evidence, uh, uh, some of the testimony that Job gives on his own behalf. Okay. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to Job chapter 29. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning stuck in the back of the pew in front of you, you will find one. And you can use the index at the front to find the Old Testament book of Job. Uh, if you'd rather just f feel your way there, it is near the Psalms. Now, in the big picture, Job is a man whose character God defends to the devil. That's how the book opens. With this conversation in heaven, uh, and Satan makes the accusation that the only reason why Job is such a good guy is because God's given him so many good things. And he says, if you were to let me take away all the good things in his life, he would clearly curse you and walk away from you. And God goes, go ahead and try. And so Job's children die in an accident. All of his wealth is torn away. His health is torn away. Um, and he's sitting with nothing. And some of his neighbors come by, and they don't know about that conversation in heaven, obviously. And so they come by, and they look at Job's life, and they went, boy, Job, you must have screwed up big. You did something to make God angry, and if you would just repent, he would lay off. And so the majority of the book of Job is him just defending his character and saying, I'm unaware of anything. I've made a great effort to be righteous, to do the right thing. And uh, basically his friends have said, yeah, right, there must be something. You know? And so most of the time we go to the book of Job to, to recognize the reality that not all suffering is self-induced. Right? That it comes from all sorts of places. In fact, here, Job literally suffers because he follows God so closely. Uh, and the reason why we're turning to it for our definition of justice today um, is for two reasons. One, because I don't think we think of the book of Job like this, but because Job gives this kind of poetic and broad defense of himself, he becomes a primary representation of a biblical ethic. As he lays out what he's been faithful in and what he's avoided, we get a, a window into uh, a biblical ethic. But the second reason is because, uh, as we all know, definitions like what is justice leave us wanting. You can get it on paper, you can memorize it, you, know, you can uh, quote it to other people, uh, but because justice is an action word, because it involves activity, one of the best ways to understand it is to see it in action. Okay. Uh, like that lady in the old court case about pornography, when they were looking for a definition of pornography, and she said, well, I know it when I see it. Right? It's the same with justice. We know it when we see it. And so looking at his words today as he points to his own life and own behavior will help us to, in a 3D sense, understand 
what justice is and hopefully this morning push out the boundaries of your standing current definition and broaden it out so that we are more prepared um, to fulfill the role that we've been talking about in our world. I actually want to read two passages today. They're separated by a couple of chapters. The first one here is in chapter 29, and then be prepared when I get to the end of this passage, we'll flip over to chapter 31. Let's read together. So in chapter 29, uh, let's pick up in verse, uh, verse 11. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved because... I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help them. The blessings of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Now jump over to chapter 31. And let's continue there in verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did he not... Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eye of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed by the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket for I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. Let's pray. Father, it's a funny place to be in this morning because all of us naturally assume that we are good and righteous and just and so we have the same tendency that Job does to defend ourselves, to make a case. And yet even when we lay our lives alongside of this, Lord, we realize how much more there is to our calling to love our neighbor as ourself. I pray as we look at this this morning, Lord, that you would stir within us a new sense of purpose to see those around us as your creation, created in your image, and therefore inherently filled with dignity and worth and a value in serving and sharing with and even saving. I pray this in your name. Amen. I have found it to be a very good... um, uh, a very good T-square to checking our own angles in life, to making sure we've actually drawn the lines straight. Um, when we look at this passage, we see someone who is tremendously proactive in the life of his community with an emphasis on those who need help. Okay. We see words like the fatherless, right, the orphan. We see words like the widow, If we want to expand the biblical definition, we could add to that the foreigner. When we take those three together, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, and how often they occur in the Bible, um, we get this kind of uh, group, this demonstration of the most vulnerable in society. In fact, remember, in the ancient world, there was no AARP. There was no Medicaid. And so being a widow in the ancient world... Uh, was often condemning you to extreme poverty, especially if you had no children to help and support you. Okay? An orphan, obviously, is somebody without children in modern adoption. 
Foster care, even orphanages, did not exist at this time, and so many orphans were street-bound and homeless, and unlike we, as children who had parents, grew up without anyone to defend them, to provide for them, to represent them, to love them. And then the foreigners, they were the ones who had no local rights, and therefore when they passed through were vulnerable to mistreatment, because who would care for a foreigner? And yet the Bible constantly brings these ones forward, and we see them represented in Job as well. In fact, look back in chapter 29, verse 11. Verse 11 says, When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Now generally, when we look at someone's life and we say, Wow, what a blessed person. Our tendency is to look at their wealth to look at their success, maybe the abundance of their family. And truth be told, Job had all those things. But when his neighbors looked at him and called him blessed, it wasn't because of those things, it was because of these things. What they saw in Job that was worthy of blessing was the way that he lived his life. And then notice, uh, because in verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. And so the, the first word we encounter in our study on justice this morning is the word help. Now, for some of us, when we think of justice, we primarily think of people getting what they deserve. And that is an essential part of what justice means. When the Bible says that God is a just judge, one of the things that that means is that he will render an appropriate sentence, right? Just like a just judge would do on earth, okay? Um, but notice here, when he starts, he starts as a helper. And you might say, well, but you're begging the question, Justin. How do you know that this is attached to justice at all? Maybe he's just and giving or helping or these types of things. But notice what follows right after this, okay? So he continues in verse 13. He says, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Okay, and so those who were in danger of death, close to death's door, they bless Job. Why? Because he shows up and he helps. The widow, uh, her heart sings for joy. Why? Because somebody has operated on her behalf. That's Job. And then notice verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. A turban. That is the key verse to this section. Okay. What Job is describing is a lifestyle of righteousness and justice. Now, interestingly, these two words in the Hebrew, justice and righteousness, as they're translated here, they occur regularly and consistently throughout the Old Testament. They're primary words. In fact, their most common usage is in reference to who God is. God is righteous and just, okay? But more importantly, these words are almost always found together in close quarters. There's a relationship between these two words, the one here translated righteousness and the one translated justice. And sparing you the details of a deep study to show you what this word means from the context across the Bible, let me just summarize it this way, okay? Righteousness and justice has to do with both having and establishing right and proper relationships and then living in light of those relationships with all your being. That's righteousness and justice. Okay? In fact, some have argued that these words function together in a way that we could just take them as a pair and turn them into a single phrase, social justice. And I mean something specific by that. Okay? Now, I know that sometimes this word social justice comes with its own definition, but pause for a second. All I'm trying to convey this morning is the two sides of this coin. One, that it has something to do with the right thing to do, and other, it is the right thing to do with other people. Social justice. Okay? Those two words go together. And so what I want you to notice here uh, is, is two things to get us started. First... Although, as we saw in Genesis chapter 9 earlier in our study, government was created by God for the sake of justice, to deal with injustice and oppression and unrighteousness, to nip in the bud the human tendency to harm one another and, and be protective and pres uh, preserving against those tendencies. Okay? However, 
that doesn't mean that justice is just for the politically powerful. It doesn't mean that it's just the responsibility of kings and princes, of presidents and congressmen, or even judges and police officers. Job is none of those things. He's not a ruler. He's just a citizen. Now, it is true, if you read the book of Job closely, you will find that he is so well respected in his community that he has become one of the elders. But how did he get there? By living this way. Okay, why is it that people come to him to determine and decide what is right? Because they can see in his life that he's righteous. Now, of all the ways that we could choose a judge in a case, that's a pretty good one, right? Instead of just passing the bar and being familiar with the law, to live a life of righteousness would make a better judge. But here's the thing. Even back in Genesis chapter 9, what God says there that becomes the foundation of government is that he will both hold human communities accountable for how they handle evil in their midst. The wording is literally for when man's blood or when man sheds blood by man his blood will be shed. And so he says I'm going to hold you accountable to do justice to respond to evil and then secondly he authorizes people to operate on his behalf to be a representation of his judgment. Okay? But even in that passage it doesn't authorize kings or princes or judges. It authorizes communities. See, here's the danger for us that Job doesn't fall into. Justice is not something we merely accomplish through political channels or appoint people who will do just things, although that's important. We need to recognize that we have the same tendency beginning with the first crime in the Bible, the first crime against another human, the first murder when Cain kills Abel. Do you remember Cain's words when God confronts him about this? He says, am I my brother's keeper? We can never stand on a foundation where we can look at those we live in community with and remove ourselves and say, not my responsibility. Job understood that. We see that in Job's life. Notice how often in this he says, if I hadn't done these things, then I would expect God's judgment. Remember the context, right? He'd say, he's saying to his friends, you say my life has turned awful because of my bad behavior. And he says that would be true if I hadn't done these things. Okay. Um, and so we see here at the grassroots level, at the common level, at the neighbor level, in fact, this is another good illustration. Like Cain in the Old Testament, we can move to the New Testament and find another example of a way that we try and excuse ourselves. Do you remember the lawyer who comes to Jesus and he says, what does God require of us? What will lead to eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this man also asks a question like Cain, what is it? Who's my neighbor? What is that? He's looking for the limits. And Jesus tells this parable that we call the Good Samaritan. And by the end of it, he's completely reversed the question. And so he comes back to the man, and he doesn't say, now tell me who your neighbor is. He says, now tell me who was a neighbor to the man in need. Okay. But the point and purpose of that story was that this Samaritan rightly recognized need and met it. And so we have to watch out for this tendency to remove ourselves from the issues of our day because we're not in charge. Because it's other people's responsibilities. In fact, this is the way we usually are as Americans. We both absolve ourselves and then criticize those in power for not taking care of it. Okay. But Job was different. He saw justice as a community project. He saw it as something that all people who know God follow in the midst of. In fact, what does it mean here when he says in verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me and my justice was like a robe and a turban. It means that it was woven into his daily life. Just in the same way every morning he got up and he got dressed. It's as if every morning he dressed himself in a commitment to righteousness and justice. And so again, this isn't just something we do 
uh, you know, every fall in the ballot box. It isn't something we do when we volunteer on the weekends. It is a daily participation in human life. Now, look at verse 15. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. So here are these pre-existing conditions, if you will, these problems that are tremendous hindrances to life, and he comes alongside and he fills in the gap where things are missing. But notice verse 16, I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. When we read the Good Samaritan, and this is a good place to start, we could walk away going, okay, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor when we see their needs, right? Here you are walking along the road, and here's a person who needs your help. Uh, When I worked uh, at Red Robin as a busboy, there was a internal policy called you see it it's your responsibility okay which meant that we would all walk with our eyes straight down because if we saw a mess it was ours to clean but that's a pretty good starting place for loving your neighbor you see your neighbor in need you do something about it but job says he went above and beyond that it says again here that he searched out the cause of him who he did not know that's investigative that's thoughtful That's detective work, right? And so, and then notice here, verse 17, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. There's a proactivity here. The the image is a really easy one to get, right? Imagine, Imagine a wolf and some sort of prey in the wolf's mouth. And here Job comes and he punches him in the jaw, so he releases his prey. But the recognition is here that he stands up to bullies, those who are taking advantage of people around him. In fact, he makes it, he renders them, and I can think of plenty of wrong ways to do this, but he renders them incapable of doing more harm. That's why it says he broke the jaw. He didn't just, uh, you know, um, slap him on the nose and say, don't do that again. He removed the possibility of oppression. All of these things are entailed in this. But we need to expand our definition more than that. And for that, I want to turn over to chapter 31. Notice verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry What shall I answer him? Do you see what Job is talking about here? He's talking about himself as an employer. Okay, so get the picture here. Job is running his family business, which probably involves herds uh, and maybe farming and these types of things. He's got tons of people who work for him, and then they come to him collectively and say, Job, this isn't right. Job, our share of the profits isn't, isn't enough. Job, the way that you've treated some of us is inappropriate. Job, your use of power is taking advantage of us, right? I mean, this is basically a labor dispute. That's what it is. And what does Job say? If he had neglected to listen, if he had set those things aside, he says here, what will I do when God calls me to account for those who were under my care? As we talked about all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, God has empowered human life. And that is an amazing, empowering thing. We can do stuff. We can create. We can cultivate. We can design. We can build. We can build communities. And with that power comes the ability to misuse it. Right? And so Job is a man of power. He's got employees. There is an Uh, you know, an inequity by design in the system, but it's leading to inequity in treatment. And Job says that matters. What I want you to notice here is what Job doesn't do, which we are fully capable of, which is criticizing the law or the speck in other people's eyes and neglecting the log in our own. I will tell you what. One of the greatest places that we neglect justice in our own lives is in our own lives. One of the greatest places we're least likely to see these things is in how we impact those around us. 
how we as parents treat our children, how we as teachers treat our students, how we as pastors serve our congregation. When we hear the words of Lord Acton that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, we think that's true of everybody but me. But Job, his justice starts at home. It starts in how he pays taxes. It starts in how he treats those he's employing. It starts in these places. And then there's another place that I want to draw out to you here in verse 16. He says, if I've wealth withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eye of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. Okay. So he says a couple of things here. At the end there, he says, if I've set my table with enough to eat and haven't invited to the table those without, right? And in the beginning, he says, if the poor have had desires and I haven't met them, right? And remember where this is all leading. Jump down to verse 22. Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Recognize what the arm and the shoulder blade are there. They're an expression of Job's ability to make a living. They're an expression of Job's own power. He says, if I've worked hard for my bread on my table and not shared it with those in need, then break my arms. Okay. And he goes on and he says more than that. He says, verse 23, for I was in terror of calamity from God. In other words, he was anticipating to be held accountable for not sharing. Now, the reason I bring this up is because oftentimes our mental description of justice is about setting right what's wrong and we would look at here Job's practice of giving to the poor and we go well that's not justice that's charity that's generosity it's not what people deserve at all it's going above and beyond what is deserved and on top of that helping out someone in need okay. now notice Job makes no distinction here between the poor and the deserving poor he doesn't tell us how it was that this person came to be hungry. He sees giving generously as justice, as a requirement. And if you read your Bible carefully, you will find the same thing. The problem is, when we use the word charity, first off, the word charity comes from charitas. And do you know why it's become a part of the English language? It's because charitas is the Latin translation of the New Testament word love. Okay? So when the New Testament says love, or in the Greek agape, in the Latin we, are, we said that was charitas, and over time that charity became just small gifts and offerings to the poor. But that's its roots. But the other problem is to us, charity is something we do above and beyond, by definition. In English, when we talk about charity, that's not something we owe. We call that a paycheck, right? We don't owe people our money who we give to in charity. We, we just freely and willingly give it, okay? But Job here loops this in under the head of what he owes other people, specifically the poor. Job understands, as we'll see in just a minute, that there is an irreducible dignity in human life apart from their behavior, apart from their wisdom, apart from their good or bad choices that should evoke in us a sense of responsibility. Okay. Now, when we help people who are in need, the bigger way that we help them is not just to take care of that need, but take care of the need that led to that need. Okay. Biblically, if you were to just do an assessment of the entire Bible and say, where does poverty come from? We could point to three places. Okay, one is crisis and calamity. Okay. Think of the Great Depression. Think of a flood that floods all the crops and so it's all gone. Uh, think of a house fire. Right. Another one that leads to poverty is the mistreatment of other people. There really can be systemic injustice that makes it impossible to move forward. There really are such practices as redlining. There really are such practices as, uh, you know, ghettoizing a community and then walking away from it. There really are segregation and these types of things that lead to poverty. That's what Job was saying wasn't in his own life when he said, if they came to me with a complaint and I did not hear them, 
right? And then there is self-induced poverty, irresponsibility, foolish choices, and sinful decisions. Okay. In most cases where poverty gets really severe, more than one of those is involved. Okay. But even there, we help in the need in a way that removes the need, which means dealing with those deeper issues. It means, like Job did, breaking the teeth of the oppressor. It means giving people counsel on making wise choices. It means confronting the deeper issues and going, well, if you want to understand your poverty, you're going to have to face your addiction in the face. Let me walk with you through it. In other words, what I would suggest to you is if we're going to understand giving as a justice issue, then we need to realize most of our giving is too small. We're not merely talking here about handing someone a five with a cardboard sign. Okay, the problem is bigger than that. And you're right to realize that this isn't going to change anything. That's not a justification to not do anything. It's a call to do more. Okay. He recognizes here that when God gives to us, he gives to us to share. When God blesses us, he blesses us so that we might bless other people. And so we need to understand that a part of justice, a part of doing righteousness, a part of what God expects of us as human beings, again, is to help those who are in need. And there's one last thing that we need to focus on, and actually it's the biggest one. There's one last thing I want to draw your attention to, which is that Job's definition of, of justice is thoroughly theological. It is rooted in the reality and the person of God. And this is really important because our world especially has been looking for a way to have a lowest common denominator expression of justice that we can all agree upon so that we can work together. Okay. In fact, there's a tendency to go, what we want is justice and not religion, so keep God out of it. But we've discovered a major Achilles heel in that. There's a few things here where Job engages with the idea of who God is that I think are significant. Uh, the first one I want to draw your attention to is back in verse 14. Remember, if his employees bring a complaint and he doesn't do, deal with it, verse 14. What then shall I do when God rises up? When he shall make inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Do you see the question he asked there? He says, why should I expect to be accountable to God for how I treat other people? Because he made both of us. Okay. In other words, the baseline irreducible dignity that I mentioned earlier has to do with the fact that the people around us God made. In fact, as we've seen in our study, we can add to that, he made them in his image, okay, with a purpose and a dignity built in and so Job says, God made me, God made them, therefore there's a responsibility for their well-being. Okay. In other words, God as creator, and then the fact that we've been created in his image, is the bottom floor of human rights and the basis of justice. Okay. Why do we owe humans anything? Because we didn't make them, nor did we make ourselves. Because the God who made us made them. Because any dignity we can claim for ourselves, in fact, remember Jesus' golden rule in the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you would have done to you. Even your self-sense of dignity and what you want and desire in life, when it's right, is rooted in this reality. That you have innate and inherent worth because God made you. But that's also true of that person and that person and them over there people with that skin color and that economic class and those sins and issues. It's a broad and baseline reality. Okay. In fact, in the Western tradition, the idea that all human beings are created in the image of God is the foundation of our entire sense of human rights. And to be honest, we've never found another foundation. We've never found another way to explain or demand proper treatment of other human beings. If you listen to the scientists who have tried to throw God out and just looked at science, they've said there's no foundation in science. Even the idea of, you know, survival of the fittest would imply the smarter people should survive. 
The ones who are more self-controlled should survive. The ones who are dealt a proper hand of fortune, those are the ones, you know, that, uh, you know, the non-destiny-oriented uh, evolution that just randomly makes choices has chosen. We find no grounds there. Okay. But if we are all made by God and then made in his image, and remember, that idea of made in his image is not just that we're somehow like God, but that he's made us for a purpose. But there's another part of this, and it goes hand in hand with this, but one of the reasons why we should pursue justice since we know God is because God pursues justice. In other words, for Job, it's not just because he was a creator, it's also because of the character of God. Now, that doesn't really come up here except all of the language that Job uses to self-identify what he should be doing in life is taken from other places in the Old Testament where God says, let me tell you who I am. Okay. God calls himself a defender of the widow, the provider for the foreigner, a father to the fatherless. Okay. I just want to show you one passage this morning because it's nearby. Look at Psalm 146. Read with me in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Do you see how much of Job's language for his own description is drawn right from here? We are called to reflect who God is, to image him, to rule representatively on his behalf. And so we are to be just, to do justice and righteousness because God is just and righteous, because he is committed to these causes because he identifies with the vulnerable. Now there's one other one we should add back from Job which is pretty significant, which is because that is God's character, there will be an accounting. Because God is just and pursues justice, he will be a just judge and not just of the evil over there but the evil in here. Listen again to what he says in verse 23. He says, why did he commit himself to these things? He says he was in terror of calamity from God and he could not have faced his majesty. Do you understand what he's saying there? He says, someday I'm going to stand before God himself and give an account for my life. And that God is a just judge who pursues justice and identifies with the vulnerable. Now you might go, but this is the Old Testament. But remember Matthew 25, which we've looked at multiple times. When Jesus returns, he's going to divide people into sheep and into goats. And what are the ones he is going to say, depart from me because I never knew you? The ones who saw him hungry and didn't feed him. The ones who saw him in prison and didn't visit him. The ones who saw him naked and didn't clothe him. Jesus makes a connection between us truly knowing him and understanding him and how we express justice to the people around us. In other words, it's not that the Old Testament is about justice and the New Testament is about grace. In fact, I would argue to you that nothing produces just living like understanding what Jesus did in grace. See, here's the problem, and this is our deepest problem with our definition of justice. In our definition of justice, we think people should get what they deserve. What I have, I earned. And then we look around at others and we say, it is just that I have and you don't. Because I made the right decisions. Because I did the right thing. You would think that a self-assessment of 
using justice as a measure would create justice in our treatment of others, but there's an innate and inherent flaw in this. Okay. How do we decide if we're just? We justify ourselves. And as you know, in English, there's two versions of that word. One means to give an account, to, like Job is here, measure out things and say, this is righteousness. And another is to make excuses. To explain the extenuating circumstances. To remove ourselves from accountability, to say like that lawyer did, and who is my neighbor? Right? I'm sure I'm righteous as long as I control the definition of what's required. Most of what Job talks about here is economic in nature. Did you notice that? Justice issues almost always have an economic arm. Okay. And so the widow is economically vulnerable. Okay. The hungry are economically poor. It's interesting that when Jesus talks about what he's done for us as Christians, he does it in economic terms. How does he open the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Tim Keller makes the assessment, like we have today, that there's a correlation between our relationship with God and our treatment of other people. That if we understand what Jesus has done for us, it will be manifest in our life, like Matthew 25 shows. And he says the problem is, for most of us, we are middle class in spirit. And here's what he means. Well, yeah, I have some needs, but I'm, I'm better than most. Well, yeah, I fall short of what God requires of me, but I bring these things to the table. And it might be your economic status. And it might be your sense of self-worth. And it might be the color of your skin. And it might be the fact that you're committed to doing the right things. And so what happens? That skewed sense of justice skews in your favor and against everyone else and leaves you unmotivated to help. But that word for poor there in the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's not just have less than other people. The word is destitute. Blessed are those who have nothing in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who come to God saying, I have nothing to offer. Please help. And when you have that mentality, when you understand the significance of the fact that your sins, including your shortcomings on this list of what justice looks like, that Christ willingly and freely and lovingly paid for them on his cross, forgave them and invited you into his life and life with our heavenly father, that provides the motivation to live out a committed life to justice. Now here's the thing, that is so much more important. I'm not just giving you the Christian way that we get to justice and everybody else has their own way. I remember listening to a Louis C.K. Uh, uh, comedy sketch, I don't know if I'm still allowed to mention him, but I'm going to anyways, um, where he was talking about the fact that he chose to purchase a pretty nice car. And he's like, I'm doing well in my career, I bought a nice car. And he's like, but every day I realized that if I were to sell my car, I could use that money to help people who were in need. And he says, and every day I don't do it. You see, the problem for most of us is not our definition of justice. It's the motivation. We know what we should do. We know what we can do. There's not, it's not like we're lacking ways to move in this direction. We just can't stir up the energy. Like Louis C.K., we go, we know we could live at a poorer level and help a lot of people, but we don't. What I would suggest to you is that the only thing that overcomes that is beauty. And this is true for everybody pursues justice. They recognize the worth and value of the individual. Maybe they don't know that they were created in the image of God. Maybe they don't recognize God's character, but they see here is a life worth helping. They are motivated by beauty. But the greatest and most potentially potent version of beauty is only available for those who know Christ. Because our most significant need, the one that we could do nothing about, the one that no one else in the world could help us with, the one that justified our condemnation, death, and judgment, 
God freely and willingly and lovely, lovingly stooped to take care of. So there is no distinction between their need and our need because our greatest need, Paul says it this way, he says, remember that he who was rich became poor so that you being poor might become rich. Your greatest poverty, your most destitute, your worst life circumstance, God on his shoulders at his cost because of his love and not yours freely took care of that. The deeper that gets into your head, the more just your life will live. And it won't be because you're shaken in your boots of judgment. That's been taken care of. It's because God is the one who sets the captives free. God is the one who feeds the hungry. And you're not just saying that and going, God is a good example. You're saying, I am a recipient of that goodness. How could I not? Express that, manifest that, delight in that, participate with that. Join God in the family business of justice. And I know it's overwhelming because there's so much to do, but like we talked about last week, the idea of being just is not solving the world's problems. It's not making the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It's about participating in representing God and his kingdom and loving our neighbor. And so your question should never be, how can I do all the things? It's, what am I going to do next? Every morning, put on your turban and your cloak of justice and righteousness. Join Jesus in the work that he's doing. Expressing to people their value and their worth. And obviously, a significant part of this is going to share with them the greatest gift you've ever been given. Not just food to fill their stomachs, but the bread of life. Not just money to help them in their poverty, but the gift that we cannot buy. To share with them and invite in, in them into this life of love. But let me tell you, the two go together. James says, how can you say to someone, be blessed, Be warmed, be filled, and then send them out hungry and cold. He says, is that what faith looks like? What demonstrates the love of Christ is the same thing that demonstrates the justice of God. It's us operating in that image, reflecting that and participating in that, extending that. And so we don't do justice to save ourselves, but because we are saved, justice flows out from us. Read the tail end chapters of Isaiah and tell me that's not the way it's supposed to work. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know which one of those under definitions you struggle with most, which one of those limitations you were prone to. But let's commit ourselves to pushing out the boundaries, to taking steps, moving forward, worshiping God as we find him represented in the face and in the lives of those around us, delighting in his goodness and what he's made and remembering what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for three types of people this morning. First, I pray for those who were comfortable and are now disturbed who were sitting in their life and happy and content and now realize deep conviction. We thank you for that, Lord. We know that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so we're not surprised, Lord, that there's more depth to our relationship of following you, that there's more places where you need to work out the uh, selfishness in our hearts and work in your overflowing love. And we also know, Lord, that we don't have to fix these things so that you will love us. And instead, Lord, we've been reminded of the depth of your love that we still have to experience and embrace. I pray also, Lord, for those who were already disturbed and in need of comfort. I pray, Lord, that they would know you as you are as eyes to the blind, as a feeder of the hungry, 
of the one who gives rest to the restless and peace to the worrier, of the one who helps those in need. And I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be a single massive need that is born alone here in secrecy, but it would be shared. That they would know that they don't have to bring a perfect financial track record or all of the resources into this church to demonstrate that they are responsible or even righteous, Lord. But they can come freely and truly and honestly with their needs because that's how we all come. I pray for those as well, Lord, this morning who do not know you, who have not yet understood what Christ has done on the cross, their need for that sacrifice, and received the gift of salvation you offer. Thank you, Lord, that you've shown yourself to be a God like this. Thank you, Lord, for all of the places in our community where that image of God is so deep that this way that life should be is obvious, it's visible. And the Bible shows us the roots underneath the ground, the reasons that's the case. It shows us that this is part of who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to those who do not yet know you and that they would receive the greatest gift and with it the motiv motivation to do the greatest good, to know Jesus Christ and the Father who sent him. And I pray for all of us, Lord, wherever we're at as we respond this morning, that we would do so with freedom, with humility, with joy, Lord, knowing that this whole work is not an interruption to the plan, it's part of the plan. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.